Welcome to Just Go Grind, a show that focuses on helping you launch and grow a business and navigate the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, and in this episode, we have Ethan Austin, Chief Strategy Officer at GigWage and the former Managing Director at Techstars. Ethan also founded a company called Give Forward, which had raised money from Naval Ravikant, First Round Capital, and more. In this episode, we talk about how he ended up at GigWage, why he decided to leave Techstars to join this company, his experience growing his own company, and really how he got those different investors on board, his experience bootstrapping for two years before he ended up raising funding, why he went through an accelerator in the first place, the unfortunate ending to his company Give Forward, his role at Techstars itself, and what that experience was like on his end, but also for founders, that and much, much more in this episode. As always, these show notes are at justgogrind.com slash podcast, and you can support the show by leaving a rating and review over in Apple Podcasts. Without further ado, here is Ethan Austin, Chief Strategy Officer at GigWage. Ethan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on, and there's a lot to discuss because your career has covered uh, a few different areas, and I think it'd be helpful just for people right now understanding what are you doing now at GigWage? Right now at GigWage, I am, uh, my, my official title is Chief Strategy Officer. Uh, we're a company, we just raised a bunch of money, and just getting us ready for scale. Um, uh, we're, we're, we've got some big customers you know, we're signing up and we've been growing and just getting ready to try and create some hyper growth. And for people who really aren't familiar with what GigWage does, can you tell us a little bit more about what you guys are doing exactly? Yeah. So GigWage um, is the easiest way to pay um, gig economy workers or 1099 workers. So just the way Augusto or an ADP does payroll for W2 workers, um, we do payroll payments um, banking for uh, 1099 workers so that they can get paid where they want to get paid, when they want to get paid, um, and how they want to get paid. And with this, Ethan, you've started a company. You've been at Techstars before. Why did you decide to join GigWage? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I've been, uh, I, I always think of myself as as a founder first. I was did uh, uh, investing for four years and um, I love that job. You know, investing, there's it's as close as you can get to being an operator. Um, and you've probably heard this before. It's like, it's the highs aren't as high and the lows aren't as low. Um, but it's every day you get to help people every day. You get to move things forward a little bit. Um, and I just had kind of an urge to, to jump back in as an operator. I'm, I'm, uh, 39, I'll be 40 next year. Um, I figure I have another, you know, one, one or two at bats to <laughs> kind of hit that home run and, and gigwage just was an opportunity that was, it was an awesome opportunity, both in terms of macro, where the where the market's going, where the company is going, and then the, the leadership team, and an opportunity to make like a big impact um, for a lot of people out there, who you know in the gig economy, who's who kind of have lumpy incomes, and just kind of create a better, just a little bit easier life for for a lot of people. Um, I don't think that we're going back to a world where where gig economy workers don't exist. I think this really is kind of the future for a lot of people and how they're going to work. Um, and so if we can help make their lives a little bit better, it's, it's something that got me really excited. And with this as well, then Ethan, taking a massive step back, how did you first get involved with startups? What was your interest in the beginning? 
Yeah, um, I don't think I had an intention to, to jump into startups. You know, when I when I left college, um, I'm dating myself. I graduated college <laughs> in 2004. Um, all of my friends, they they want you know the cool thing to do is investment banking back then. Everyone was going to Wall Street, um, and I ended up going to law school, not by choice, but more like by default uh, because I was a poli sci major and I didn't know what the hell I was going to do. Um, <laughs> You know, and so startups wasn't something that was on my radar at all. It wasn't something that was cool or sexy at the time. And and more than anything, I, I, I came across a problem that kind of kept punching me in the face that I couldn't stop thinking about. Um, and I couldn't, you know, that wasn't being solved in the world and seemed like an opportunity. And um, I, I ended up taking that opportunity, um, you know, against against the better wishes of, of a lot of people around me, I'd probably say. Um, but it just seemed like the right thing to do at the time. With that, I mean, with with other people maybe saying you shouldn't, or also your friends or other people you know going into a investment banking at the time, which I've heard repeatedly is, was definitely really hot at that, at that point in time. For you then, I mean, what was the conviction around getting into startups? Like, what was about it? It wasn't the idea of startups. I don't even think I knew the word startup at the time. Probably it was. It was more just this this idea. Uh, there was a. I'd been, I'd, I'd, during law school, I, I trained for a marathon, um, and um, the, so the company I started was, was a company called GiveFord, and and we gave people um, crowdfunding pages to raise money for their loved ones' out of pocket medical expenses. And when we started this, the word crowdfunding didn't exist. You know, tech. Uh, Kickstarter didn't exist. GoFundMe didn't exist. Like we were, we were kind of out out in front of this, trying to create something um, that hadn't existed in the world really, um, in, in the same way that we think of crowdfunding now. And um, when I was in law school, I got a, a fundraising page to raise money for St. Jude's. It's a children's cancer organization um, for the marathon I was running, and and I thought it was such a cool idea. I was able to raise a bunch of money um, from friends and family. And this is a time I didn't even have Facebook or you know, social <laughs> media at the time. It was just like emailing people. And um, and I started running on the street in a banana costume and promising people I'd raise, you know, I'd run the marathon in a banana costume if I hit a certain goal. And sooner, you know, it's like handing out like little flyers on the street, literally to people. And, and wow. sooner than later, then uh, I had people from across the country donating because word spread. And again, this is before social media really existed. So like, to me, it was like, this is wild that so many people are donating to my cause. Um, and, you know, the challenge I saw was that I picked children's cancer. My dad died from colon cancer when I was a kid. So if I could have, I would have picked colon cancer to run for, but that wasn't an option in the the official charity partners for the marathon. So I thought, what if there could be a platform where you could raise money for any, you know, charity or any cause that you care about um, instead of like 25 official partners of the marathon? Because this tool was really great. And so... That was the the thing that that struck me is just like this is amazing, um, and why? How do we open this up to the rest of the world? Um, and from there, I really couldn't convince anyone to do it with me because all my friends had jobs, and I I tell them, you know, you tell someone of a new idea, and you, know, you have eyes that would kind of glaze over, and most people nodding their head, telling you, yeah, that's that's cool, seems like a great idea, but you know. <laughs> I'm, I'm making a hundred grand. I'm pretty happy <laughs> doing what I'm doing. Like, you know, thank, good luck. Yeah. Um, and so I probably wasn't going to do it, honestly. Um, and then I got introduced to my co-founder, 
um, who was already starting something like this. And she had the guts to start it without a co-founder, non-technical, without enough money to build the site and just kind of jumped into it. And, you know, I figured if she's doing this, she's brave enough to do it. Um, You know, that's, that was, I I should too, right? And so I joined (laughs) her um, and we, we, we launched it in 2000, in August of 2008 um, and, and went from there. How did you meet your co-founder? She got introduced to me um, from an ex-girlfriend in college who I told maybe a handful of people um, of the idea that I was thinking about. And and she met um, my, my co-founder at a Super Bowl party in Chicago and called me up and said, hey, you know, this idea that you've been talking about, I just met someone who's doing something really, really similar um, and you should talk to her. And I reluctantly, uh, you know, I think a month later, I hadn't called her yet and I was studying for the bar at the time. And... Uh, and my ex-girlfriend called me back. She's like, you, you talked to her yet? I was like, no. And so I, I finally picked up the phone and talked to her. And, you know, the, the minute we talked, it felt like it finally clicked because it finally felt like someone actually understood what we were talking about. Instead of getting the eyes glazed over look, it was, you know, we, I think we were supposed to schedule a talk for like 30 minutes and we talked for like three hours. Oh, so, um, so it was pretty clear pretty quickly. Like, oh, there's there's something here. Like we could maybe do this. And you mentioned like didn't have the financial means at that point, or she doesn't, she didn't at least to, you know, carry this through or have the necessary technical know-how. What were some of the first things you guys did then to build this into an actual company? Uh, we didn't do anything quickly. I'll tell you that. <laughs> uh, we bootstrapped for two years. Um, that, that was, that was what we had to do. Uh, we got lucky two years later that we, we became, one of 10 companies in the first class of Techstars, what would become Techstars Chicago. Um, and that was just by chance that we got into that class. I think there was five or 600 companies applied and we were one of the 10. And it was just a little bit by chance that um, the person who was running it at the time, a guy named Sam Yagen, um, whose wife's coworkers, uh, like niece needed a medical fundraising page and and, and Sam was in tech. He was the founder of OkCupid and then later ran uh, Match Group um, and like Tinder and Match and all, all those companies. So he was in tech and, and his, his wife asked him, the, uh, can you help set up a, a blog with a PayPal widget? That's what people would do back then Yeah, um, because it, you know, crowdfunding didn't exist. And he's like, this is insane. Like, <laughs> asking me, I'm like five degrees away from this person. They're asking me because I'm in tech. They think I have the know-how to do this. Um, this is crazy. This is a real problem. And then a few months later, we came around and applied. And so it was just kind of by chance that he had seen the exact problem that we were solving that we got into that program. Did you, at that point, I mean, did you know right away that you wanted, I mean, obviously you mentioned bootstrapping for a while, but that you wanted to go through an accelerator in the first place? Or like, how did the, the choice of even doing an accelerator come about? No, this was 2010. Accelerators didn't really exist in the way that they exist today. There was Y Combinator. Um, yep. I think Y Combinator and Techstars launched within a year of each other. Um, Techstars, I think, launched maybe in 2007. So, like, this was the first accelerator in Chicago. Yeah. They weren't something, you know, they're, now there's a zillion accelerators, right? Um, yeah. They weren't something that were widely known. So, this was the first one 
to hit Chicago. And it, we weren't aware of it, but like when we saw, we saw it, you know, what they were doing, we said, oh, this seems awesome. Um, and even then, we, even after we got accepted, you know, I think it was like 6% equity and we, we had no funding, we had nothing, you know, we had a bunch of interns and we still thought to ourselves, should we do this? Is it worth it? Which was like the dumbest question, you know, ever. It was, it was 100% worth it. It was probably the best decision we ever made as a company. Um, but it wasn't clear to us in the beginning. It was kind of nebulous, like what we were going to get out of it. Um, but it was, it was transformational for us. And, and they took equity, obviously, from that. And that funding, did you, did you raise more funding pretty soon after that? Or how did that go on, on actually funding the business uh, side of things as well? Yeah. Uh, so, so following that program, um, we raised um, a $500,000 angel round um, you know, immediately following the program. And then a, about a year after that, um, we raised a seed round from First Round Capital and Founder Collective. Um, and then went on to raise uh, more capital from there. So it definitely helped us raise capital. Like we never would have been able to raise capital without that. I think, I think a, a good example. So we ended up with a bunch of great angels, um, coming out of the program and, you know, our lead mentor, we had a lead mentor guy, but guy by the name of Tim Krauskopf and, and he had created, um, what would become internet explorer. So he'd taken a company public for a billion dollars. He was in the browser wars with Mark Andreessen back in the day. Like he was this, this person who had done so much and he took us under his wing. Like we didn't really know what we were doing. And, and, um, it's so helpful when you're raising capital to have someone that takes you under their wing like that. Um, because no one would trust us, right? Like, like even coming out of the program, like we still had a lot to prove, Yeah, they trust him. Um, because he has a lot, he has a lot of credibility in the space. And he helped us get, you know, our first 40% of that round on board. Um, he called up some of his friends and, you know, the, he was putting in money. They were going to put in money. And like getting that first 40% was so critical. Um, and then helped us lever up. And we ended up getting David Cohen on board, the founder of Techstars. We ended up getting uh, J.B. Pritzker on board, who's now the governor of Illinois. Um, and all these people on board. Uh, because that fundraising, like we had momentum in that round because of Tim, basically. Yeah. Um, and all of those things end up levering up. So, you know, a year later, we got first round capital and founder collective on board. And um, we had pitched first round capital back in 2009 and 2010. And they said no each time. And then 2012, you know, they said yes. Um, and sometimes I joke, obviously things had changed a bit by then in terms of the the crowdfunding landscape, it was clear that this was probably going to be a thing by 2012. Yeah. Um, and we had more traction by that time. But, but it also matters, like, I always joke, like, just as important as what's in your deck is who makes the introduction for you. And, <laughs> and David Cohen, the founder of Techstars, you know, in 2012, made the introduction for us. Um, and, you know, who was an investor in our company at the time. And I think those things just end up making a big difference. And so it was instrumental in, in not just helping us land our first round, but our next round and our subsequent round after that. Yeah, the mentor side of things. I've heard that repeatedly from people that have gone through different accelerators. Like you said, the landscape's much different at this point. There's just way more of them. Uh, but in, having interviewed many people who have gone through Y Combinator and Techstars even more recently, just getting those mentors and people on board who know, who have access to capital. Because especially if you 
are starting a company and you don't have access to investors yet, you know, obviously there's ways to get that, but going through an accelerator seems like it's, it's useful. I saw you also, you also had Naval Ravikant as, as an investor as well. Yeah. Uh, how was it, was he an, an angel investor of yours? Was it, did they come later? I'm just curious because he's obviously well known at this point. Yeah. Naval was an angel investor. So he was a, he was a funny story. So Naval, we used AngelList to, to get the last 20% of our angel round. So we had mm -hmm. 400,000 to close and we had another 100,000 open. We used AngelList and AngelList, this was 2000, end of 2010, like December, 2010. AngelList was brand new at the time. And Naval was literally still, he was emailing people out. So, so when we submitted <laughs> our thing to AngelList, it was, it was Naval like on Christmas day, sending out the email to like his buddies, you know, who were just, he's seeding AngelList still. It was still very manual. Yeah. And, and Howard Lindzen, you know, who's a, is a great fintech investor and just a great consumer investor and uh, had become a, a great friend, um, joined on. We, we ended up getting him from, from that email from Naval. And so he started building a little bit of a relationship with Naval then. Um, what was funny was, um, I have a friend now, Brendan Baker, who was, who was one of the first employees at AngelList, and it was him and Naval who were doing, and, and Nivy too, I think, who were doing a lot of the customer service. And I'd be emailing them like at midnight, Chicago time, and like they would be responding, you know, two minutes later. And, and I didn't realize at the time that it was actually Naval half the time who was responding. Um, and... I was just really impressed by that. You know, by that time, Naval had been a successful entrepreneur. Um, he didn't need to be responding, you know, immediately following an email from a random, you know, a random user, but he was, you know, and obviously he doesn't do that today. Yeah. Um, but I was just really impressed with his hustle. Like there was, there was a saying at the time, like you can big time people, which is to kind of ignore them and just, you know, but I, 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 I kind of, I coined a phrase as, he would small time people um, in terms of making people who were not important at all, like me, feel like I was the CEO of Google. Um, and I think that really stuck with me. We were so customer service driven in our business that that just attention, like always, it, it stood out to me. Um, uh, and he jokes with me. He's like, you know, I wrote a blog post about it once. And he's like, you know, that blog post wasn't really helpful because now everyone expects this of me. And it's not the reality. Like I can't do it at scale. Uh, and so I maybe have done him a disservice, uh, in that blog <laughs> years ago, but, uh, you know, long story short, you know, 2012, we'd, we'd already signed on, uh, founder collective to lead our round and, and first round capital to co-lead our round. Um, and we were filling out with some strategic angels. And by that time I had moved out to San Francisco and it was actually roommates with Brendan Baker, uh, my buddy who was that first employee at, at angel list. And he said, well, what about Naval? And I was, and I, you know, I never thought we'd get Naval in the round, but I just emailed him and, and, uh, and he, he said, yeah, so it was just kind of, um, you know, it just kind of came full circle a little bit. Yeah. That's crazy. And I'm sure, yeah, today Naval has gotten you know much, much bigger in terms of press and attention because of podcasts he's done and other things he's talked about and he's yeah exploded at this point. There's no way he could possibly do that. I mean, it really would be impossible for him at this point, but with, with the business too, then, so with give forward, you obviously mentioned a lot on the funding side and how that went, which I think is really helpful for people. But one of the things you mentioned early on was you said you had uh, interns. Who was the team early on when you were 
building this thing, especially in those two years you started? The first two years was all interns. I mean, we had no, we had no money. We literally printed our own business. It's funny to even say we had business cards back then. We printed our own business cards and we had this shared office and we used a paper cutter like you'd see in an elementary school teacher's classroom. And mm-hmm. we used a paper cutter to cut our own business cards. That's how scrappy and how little money we had at the time. So we survived the first couple of years with just just interns. And we had, you know, I think what we did right was that we had a really great culture. Um, even though we hadn't codified it and didn't hadn't written anything down, we didn't know what our culture was. Like all, all companies have a culture, whether it's written down or not. Yeah. Um, and, and it was fun. And we did like a lot of fun things. Like we're just kind of goofy. It was, it was like six or seven of us in a cramped little office that was meant for a single lawyer or an accountant. Um, <laughs> and we'd all, you know, it's hot in there cause there was like way too many bodies in there than should have been for an, for an office, way too many laptops that were old with bad fans running hot. And it was just like, it was crazy, but we made it fun. We did scavenger hunts and we did burrito eating contests and the whole office was just kind of, it was just a fun place to be. And we had interns, um, you know, two, uh, Erica Treziak or Erica Allhorn now, um, and Sarah Seeley, um, who were some of our two early interns and among many, but like both of them stayed for a year and a half as wow. interns before we could hire them full time. And I remember one time Sarah said something, I, you know, she's like, yeah, I stay here because it's more fun here than it is anywhere else. And so I think that was just one thing we did right was we just created an atmosphere that was fun for everyone to be at. And we gave our interns real work to do. Um, we had a, one of our core values that we later would become a core value was be the CEO of your position. And so we always tried to empower people to do real work. It wasn't just like grunt work. Um, they were doing the same work alongside us, partly out of necessity, right? We, we didn't have yeah. a bandwidth, um, but, but in large part, um, because we wanted to help, you know, grow people and develop people and give them real opportunities, not just crap work to do. You mentioned the culture side of things. Did you, I mean, making this a fun environment, was that very much so intentional from the beginning of, yeah, I just want to make this a fun place because it'd just be better. Or did you have some insight from that around, you know, any investors mentioning that? I'm just curious on how that was built. No, that was, you know, I think largely your, your, your culture and your values stem from, you know, your founders. Yeah. Right. And, um, that was something that was, you know, Desiree and I, um, when we, my, my co-founder Desiree, uh, Vargas Wrigley, um, she and I met when we met for the first time, I flew it to Chicago and it was St. Patrick's day. So we, we met right for the very first time at some terrible Chicago bar over <laughs> Irish car bombs. Right. <laughs> and like, uh, I think, and for the first, you know, three years, our main way, cause we didn't know how to market it all. Like the main way we'd get the word out was like through parties, right. Cause we were 26 and we have no idea what we're doing. And we'd have, we'd throw parties and we threw, you know, before ugly sweaters became a thing. Again, I'm dating myself. We, we threw the ugly sweater pub crawl in Chicago that would grow to like 500 people. Um, and so like, it was just always in our nature. Um, because we liked having fun and, and, you know, take fun seriously became one of our first three core values. Um, not because we were trying to be strategic, um, but because we were like, well, we're working really hard. This might as well be fun as well. And so I think it just stemmed from who we were and, you know, what was important to us um, at the time. And in hindsight and retrospect, um, turned out to be pretty smart strategically. And for people who don't know, I mean, you 
helped people raise $200 million at this company to help cover their loved one's medical expenses. And you said saved an estimated 10,000 plus lives, which is an incredible impact. And you mentioned a little bit on helping this thing grow early on to know what you're doing, having parties to get attention and everything. But on the growth side, what else did you do that was helpful for you guys to grow into having that much of a massive impact? Yeah, we could talk about the the early years, which was just all scrappy hand-to-hand combat. Most of it didn't work. Sure. Um, and we could talk about, you know, later years, things that started to scale as we started to operationalize things like, you know, SEO and paid search, um, media, um, you know, those are the things are the channels that, that tended to work the most for us. Also customer service. We had a net promoter score of 81. Um, you know, another one of our core values um, was cultivate through compassion. Um, and, and compassion was like the thing that really drove our business. And our idea was, um, you know, a lot of people, when they're signing up for crowdfunding services, especially as, as the space got really crowded with GoFundMe and you caring and CrowdRise and everyone started doing the same thing, was it's hard to differentiate a platform on the basis of like comparing the two before you use it. But once you've used it and, and we had half of our team was what we called fundraising coaches. Um, and we gave each of them $500 a year to do kind things for random users. Um, and that was just, again, like part of our values and our culture was, you know, the idea of cultivate through compassion. We had this net promoter score of 81. They were also like a secret sales force, right? They weren't selling people and upselling them. But like, we always thought if we can get people to love us, they're going to recommend this to their friends and family. Um, not just because it was meaningful for them in, an, in a critical moment in their life, but because the experience of doing so and because we were there for them as a, like, as a compassionate ear as they're going through one of the hardest things in their life. Um, it was just an opportunity for us to, to be human, I think. Yeah. And, and as a result of that, um, help us uh, get a lot of word of mouth. From that experience, you you eventually get to Techstars, and I want to get to that point as well. So how did that, how did you go from the transition from Gift Forward to then ending up being a director, then a managing director at Techstars? Yeah, well, the the, the Gift Forward story was a, a pretty sad ending, actually. Um, uh, Facebook, more or less, we got 80% of our traffic from Facebook. Okay. And... Um, we lived by Facebook and we died by Facebook. We, we grew as Facebook grew. Um, and, um, they decided at one point they changed the algorithm. We lost 25% of our revenue and traffic overnight, 75% within a year. And basically right as we were expanding the company, we were, we were, we were expecting, um, probably an acquisition from, uh, a strategic investor who had just invested in us. Um, and within a year we basically had to shut down the company we, you know which which was a, a pretty sad ending um and facebook tried to recruit um a couple of us to join they were just launching uh their um social impact team at facebook you know this was end of 2015 and they tried to recruit us to become you know the second and third product managers on that team to help build out that team and, you know, we said no. And then a year later, they built the exact same product that Give Forward was. So so they more or less just kind of closed us down, which was, a you know, after eight years was a really hard way to end things. Um, you know, and in that process, you know, I, I was telling all, you know, our investors, um, 
you know, what was happening. And one of them, as I mentioned before, was David Cohen, the founder of Techstars. And I had just lost him and a bunch of money. Um, but he said, hey, if you ever want to work at Techstars, let me know. <laughs> and, you know, as it turned out, I told him I'm, I'm taking off a year after eight years. I need just a year, year break. And my wife and I went to go travel around in South America and just took a year off to, to, you know, clear our heads and figure out what the hell we wanted to do next in life or, you know, at least on my end. Um, uh, and came back to LA after that. And as it turned out in LA, they were just launching Techstars LA, you know, right as I was getting back. So it was again, like good timing, good luck, good, you know, it was fortuitous. Um, and Techstars had been such a meaningful part of my life and was everything that, you know, not all the success of Get Forward, but like we wouldn't have got our start without Techstars for sure. And we yeah. wouldn't have been able to do any of that um, without Techstars. And so for me, it was a cool opportunity to, you know, to see if I could do the same for others, what Techstars had done for me. In that time, obviously it's a crazy story to, to deal with that. And I'm sure there's other companies that have had similar when you build something that's really growth built on someone else's playing, playing ground. It's, it's hard, always difficult. How did you mentally though get through that when you had to shut it down? It was hard. Well, honestly, it was, it was pretty, I mean, like I, I would say to this day, I still haven't fully got, got over it. I'd yeah. like, you know, probably should talk to a therapist, I'll be honest. And, you know, rather than talking to you on a podcast, that's probably who I need to talk to. Um, it was hard because it was something you worked on for eight years and to see it just kind of collapse like that in such a dramatic fashion out of nowhere was really difficult. Um, not only that, like financially had been expecting, you know, hadn't been saving a bunch of money because, you know, at that time, my co-founder and I still had sizable portions of that company and, and yeah. it, which we were expecting, you know, were standing to, to make a good amount of money. And, you know, it didn't really, I, at least I didn't really, um, you know, plan financially for that outcome that we ended up having, which was the outcome that was not terribly financially lucrative. Sure. It was, it was hard. So like, um, what did I do? I'm trying to think through. I mean, like, I don't know if I was super, you know, it'd be a line if I said I was super intentional about yeah. it. Um, you know, I, I think in, in most things in life, I try and take a long view um, and not get too worked up about anything that's going on at the time. Uh, my wife and I like going to travel and, and not um, thinking about work at all for a year. Yeah. To do all these things and explore. And I, I, hit off, um, I checked off some big life goals of, of summiting some mountains in South America and read more books in that year than I probably had in the last 10 years combined um, and didn't think about work. And I think that was probably, that was one of the best things we ever did. You know, and I, I had an opportunity to join Facebook as a product manager, which from my standpoint, I care a lot about impact and to be able to impact, you know, 3 billion users um, as a, as one of the early product managers there would have been like one of the coolest jobs in the world. Like, like it just to build out that help build out that team at, at Facebook and the products and that product roadmap would have been one of the coolest jobs in the world. But instead I said, no, I can't do this because my wife and I have already committed to traveling and yeah. they, they weren't willing to wait until I came back. And I have no regrets at, 
at all, even though that would have been an incredibly cool job. I have no regrets at all about the traveling. Um, so I think that more than anything uh, was how I coped with it and dealt with it. And it was just to, to kind of step away for a bit and clear my head and and take a, a, a broader look at like what's important in life. Um, and, you know, I, I think ultimately, like the only thing, you know, that I look back today, the only thing that I regret is, uh, you know, it, it'd be nice if I had a few extra zeros in my bank account, um, <laughs> but everything else, like, it's hard to have any regrets on the experience. I wouldn't trade it in for anything. It was like an amazing experience, people that will be in my life forever and to be, have, you know, an impact on, on so many people and to save so many lives and, and, um, really more, more than saving lives to impact so many lives, um, yeah. was, was, was something like, you know, I, I, I don't regret for a second. Just one quick follow-up on that. So, you know, you took a year off. Was it always going to be a year to travel? Or did you think it was going to be six months and you extended it? I'm just curious on how you thought about that because I've talked to a number of people who have sold companies, have parted ways with companies, and they've taken breaks as well. And to, you know, figure out what they want to do and even just kind of unpack what just happened, how long was that? How did you decide? travel for a whole year. It was – my wife was finishing grad school, um, so – uh, the plan was to travel for six months. Um, I was taking a year off from working, um, and she had she was we were just waiting for her to finish grad school, and then we were taking off. Um, so, you know, in the time being, I I filled my time. I took up like a product management class at General Assembly just to like learn, um, and I caught up on years of television I'd missed. <laughs> uh, just I didn't, didn't watch TV for years, and caught up on all the things I'd been, you know. You know, that, that's probably always the biggest regret, actually, is like you grow that you do this company and you can become so tunnel vision, so singular focused, you miss out on all these other things in life. And I don't think it's healthy to take a year off to catch up on all the important things you missed out on. Um, that's that's how I that's how I change it. If I were to do it again, as I wouldn't I try and be more balanced in the process and not so extreme. Um, but yeah, so I, you know, I did some things I cut up on life Um we went we, we planned to travel for six months. It ended up being four months after uh, after ending up in a, a Bolivian hospital for a number of days. We said oh, maybe now it's time to call it quits and and head back home. And we head back home and um, we explored uh, where we wanted to live. And we went volunteered. This is 2016. Now we volunteered uh, on Hillary's campaign to to knock on some doors in Pennsylvania, which didn't work at the time, <laughs> but we tried. Yeah. You know, we did some other things um, and and then started towards the end of the year looking for jobs. And then Techstars, tell me about how that experience was as as a director when you got started, uh, manager, director, director, how, how that experience was for you. What were some of the things you were helping with at the time? Yeah, um, that experience was fantastic for me. Um, I have two people really to thank for that. Um, one is a guy named Cody Sims who hired me. And uh, another is uh, Anna Barber, who is the managing director uh, of Techstars LA. Um, and there, so like I, I came on as a director and typically what they, what they do is they have a program manager and a managing director. Um, and I was interviewing for the managing director position and ended up in the, as a finalist and, and, and didn't get it. Um, and they said, hey, like, you know, we're giving this job to... To, to Anna Barber, who would end up being the, the managing director there. Um, 
but would you want to come on as a director? And, and in my role there, I'd be half operational, like a program manager, and half um, as an investor, because that's they knew that's what I wanted to do. Um, and and so that was they created a unique role for me that wasn't like a common role within TechStars. And so Cody Cody did that, which was awesome. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, and I joked with Anna, I was probably a terrible program manager. In fact, I know I was a terrible program manager. <laughs> I'm totally disorganized and, you know, being organized and uh, operational and being able to create plans and, and things like that is what you need in a great program manager. And I'm the farthest from that. Um, so she got, she, she didn't hire me, unfortunately. She just got paired up with me um, <laughs> and they said, hey, you guys are going to work together, um, which, which, you know, she dealt with, she graciously dealt with for, for, for two years. But like one thing I'm really... Um, you know, thankful for Anna was like, surely let me, um, you know, as much as I, as much as I could delve into the world of investing. Cause she knew that's what I wanted to do. Um, and we had a great, um, we had a great associate, uh, Olivia Chung at, at the program and Olivia, I joked was really my boss because all the, all the operational stuff that I was supposed to be doing, she really, she really did. And, and she was our associate and she did it for two years. Um, and she, I joked that she was my boss. Um, and, you know, because of Olivia, I was, I was able to focus um, a lot more on the sourcing side and on the portfolio management side and, and, and really kind of training um, to what it is to be an investor. And so at the end of those two years, um, uh, I was given the opportunity, um, uh, to, to run the, the Techstars Western Union program. And, and it really, without, Anna, Anna really went to bat for me, uh, yeah. which it was, it was the first time Techstars had ever hired, um, uh, someone from a director level and promoted them internally. Um, we traditionally just hired from the outside. And so they, they hadn't done that before. And they did that with me and another, director, the director of New York, uh, a guy by the name of KJ, um, at the same time. And so, you know, it was a big, I, I joked with KJ, like, let's not fuck this up, you know, <laughs> exactly. like, I hope we do a good job here. Cause you know, otherwise they're never going to do this again. Um, but Anna, it wouldn't have happened if, if Anna hadn't really gone to bat for me. And so I'm, I've always been, um, very grateful for that. And she just really said like, Ethan can do this job and, and, you know, that was, you know, what gave me the opportunity. Yeah, the relationships go a long way. And she now is at M13, um, yeah. which is great. And hence to see that. And people obviously move on to different spots. And I had Cody Sims on the show. Uh, I really like Cody Sims. Uh, he's been on the show before previously. And uh, he spoke at class in USC. And kind of, then I had him on the show talking about his journey as well, which is pretty fascinating. And uh, thankfully, he hired you. <laughs> that was yeah, great. He's, he's great. He's fantastic. Yeah. And then from there, so people who aren't familiar, because I'm not actually super familiar with how, yeah, what that role entails at Techstars in terms of you obviously have an accelerator and you have people applying. How does that work? Like, what were you doing when you were, let's say, as the managing director, uh, when you're at the Western Union Accelerator? What are some of the things that you are, you're working on there and things you're kind of responsible for? Yeah. So there's three pieces to it. There's recruiting, um, there's running the program, and then there's portfolio management. Um, and, and a lot of that is like helping, helping companies raise capital. Um, yeah. you know, mostly what you do 
or at least what I did. Some people, everyone's different, right? Some people like to dig in more with companies. I'm of the mindset like, you know more about your company than I do. I'm not going to try and get into the weeds with you on stuff that like doesn't make sense for me to get on the weeds on. Yeah. Um, you know, I see my role as an investor um, as someone who can open doors for people the same way people open doors for us and leverage my relationships um, for the founders that, you know, were in my portfolio. So I would try and make introductions and put them in touch with the right experts if they're having problems um, and put them in touch with the right investors who I think would be good fits for them. Um, so that's, that's a lot of what you're doing during program and especially post-program. Um, and pre-program, like the, you know, you're also recruiting mentors um, pre-program and, and getting a great group of mentors involved so that um, so that you're not doing all the work, right? It's supposed to be leveraging <laughs> the network and getting great mentors on board. Um, but most of the, the most of the the job um, outside of portfolio management is really figuring out how to pick great companies. Like every investor, and, and I think Techstars is at one end of the spectrum um, in terms of providing value add. I think Techstars does a fantastic job at that. Um, you know, having gone through the program myself and having been in four years of it on the Techstars side, but even Techstars uh, will, there's only, there's only so much you can do as an investor, right? There's only so much value add you can add. As an right. Any, any investor who tells you otherwise is lying. Um, and so the key to this job is, is really picking great teams that don't need your help, right? <laughs> the teams that are going to do great with or without you and convincing them to do the program. And so that's, I think, where most MDs make their money is, is, is really you're in sales. Just like a CEO of a startup or any other of any founder, you know, your job is always sales. For people going through that process of if they actually are applying to Techstars or are curious about that from the founder side, what does that program entail? What can they expect from the program? The process of applying? Yeah. And then once they're in, what does that actually look like? Obviously, you just mentioned some of those value add things of intro, you know, sure. opening doors. But I think people would, even if they're founders listening who are curious about going through Techstars, would be helpful. Yeah. To hear a bit more. Sure. Uh, going through Techstars is intense. It's like, I'll tell you that right now. Um, but it's it, it expands your mind and expands your network in, in ways that are exponential. Um, you're, you're, you're essentially doing not a job on top of a job because you're not doing things that you wouldn't be no, normally doing as a company. You just probably wouldn't be doing them so soon. And so you, it ends up <laughs> a lot of work. Um, and you're managing a lot of relationships um, that last well beyond the three months of the program that last your entire lifetime. Like, you know... <laughs> I look at a lot of our mentors from the program now, and they're the people I went through Techstars with myself a decade ago. And these are people that are staying in your life forever and help you. And now one of them is actually an investor at GigWage um, <laughs> during our program last year. And you know, my co-founder Desiree, as I'm thinking about it, um, from Give Forward was a mentor in our program, and she introduced GigWage when she was a mentor in our Techstars Western Union program this year to one of our, you know, big investors at, at GigWage. So. Um, a lot of it is relationship management, but from a day-to-day -day basis, um, you know, we'll 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 do this or, like every week. We'll have KPI reviews, um, and we try to get everyone into a cadence of reporting KPIs, building the right KPIs, and, and really 
building a muscle around execution. Like we can't tell you the right things to work on, but we can help teams start to create a little bit of uh, formal processes around execution so that they leave the program um, executing at a higher level than when they came in, right? Um, so that's like a big, a big piece of the program. Um, you know, the first month of the program is all about meeting mentors. We'll, we'll have between 80 and 100 mentors they'll meet with in Jeez. 20 minute sessions, um, which is a totally overwhelming and an exhausting process. Um, but at the end of it, you end up picking, you know, let's say five to seven mentors that you'll work with during the program. And sometimes you'll work with these people well beyond the program and you'll keep in touch with them the rest of your life. The other, you know, say 75 mentors you met with and you're not working closely with, you're staying in contact with them. You're emailing them weekly, giving them your updates and asking for help. So whatever problems you're facing, you're asking this group of mentors for, um, and now have this, this really big network of people that are here just to help you. Um, so, you know, one of the things we stress is weekly, weekly, you know, email updates to your, to your mentors. And, um, most startups out there do monthly. And once program's done, we suggest going to monthly, but like, you know, that's one of the most important things I think as a founder you can do is just communicating with, with, uh, your network and staying engaged with them because they can't help you if you're not out there telling them what you need. So, um, that's a big part of the program. Every Wednesday we'd have an event, um, internally, um, that's just kind of for fun. Um, uh, we'd have family dinners, we'd bring in speakers, people who've been successful entrepreneurs and had big exits. Um, and also people who have failed stuff as well, um, yeah. just have founder stories that were always, I think off the record, um, just really interesting stuff. And then we did, you know, there was, there was some level of, um, getting like a little mini MBA, right? There was educational stuff, there was workshops, um, you know, and, you know, we'd usually have one, you know, one to two workshops a week or so throughout the program. For you, Ethan, looking at this experience, you've been a director, managing director at Techstars, you've been a founder, you've uh, now you're at another startup. For people curious about whether some people go back and forth between being a founder, being an investor, for you, why why one or the other? I mean, I know you didn't more intentional necessarily uh, you're getting into startups, you just happen to want to do this company originally. But how do you think about that in terms of investing versus kind of running a company? One, one is certainly easier than the other, right? <laughs> Running a company. <laughs> um, I mean, I imagine there'll be a time I get back into investing, right? I'm, I'm, um, I'm not quite 40. Uh, my, my thought on being in a, in a startup is, you know, we never cross that finish line to get forward, right? And I told you that there's still that chip on the shoulder. <laughs> yeah. like, I want to have that big exit. I want to see what, you know, how big we can build this and how, how big we can do something and how much of an impact I can make on the world. Um, and you can do that more directly going all in on one company than spreading out and, and, and having a smaller impact on 20 or 30 or 40 companies. Um, and so, you know, I, I imagine, you know, you see a lot of people switch back and forth between the worlds, um, going from operator to investor to operator to investor. You mentioned M13, you know, my friend Gotham over there, he was an investor at General Catalyst. Um, who actually I met him when we were in Techstars in 2010. He was in the <laughs> general catalyst. Then he went out and built NatureBox. You know, did that for 
five or six, seven years, raised like 80 million bucks and then became an investor again and partner at M13. Um, and so I think, I think you see this, you tend to see it a lot. Um, I think it's, you know, it's, it's uh, probably from people who, I don't know, maybe in their nature, they like variety and, and, um, you know, like exploring different parts of their brain. So I explored one part of my brain for, for four years and want to kind of extend and explore a different muscle and different parts of my brain, you know, uh, with gig wage. And, you know, one day I might be an investor again, who knows? <laughs> exactly. Ethan, I'm, I'm a big reader. So I'm always curious if anyone has any suggestions, any particular books, personal and professional that just have been impactful for you or you suggest to others? Yeah. Um, you know, one book that we would read, have everyone read it, give for, we're big Seth Godin fans. Um, and a book linchpin, um, was, was super important for us. Um, and we had, I don't know, 50 copies of it or so. And we had <laughs> we gave it to everyone upon, you know, getting at the company, joining the company. And, um, I think that one was, was super impactful for me. Um, there's a, there's a bunch of other books, but for, for one that we, you know, literally instituted into, uh, our, our onboarding process, that one um, encapsulated a lot of the things and a lot of the way I felt, um, already and, and my co-founder Desiree felt, and it was, it was simpatico with our, our existing culture and just summed up so much more nicely <laughs> that I stepped good and he's such a great writer. Um, so that was, that was a big one. Um, Tony Shea's book, um, delivering happiness, which, you know, was, it was all about creating culture was in, incredibly impactful for us as well. Uh, we read that book in 2010 as we were going through Techstars. And at the same time, we spoke to a woman, Thea Polonsic, who was an executive coach. And, and for the first time, we're talking about mission, vision, values, and had a chance to meet Tony Shea that summer, who wrote that book. And he was talking about the same thing in the book. And those two things combined um, really helped us start to codify uh, our, our culture and and make it centerpiece of what we were doing. So that book was eye-opening for me. And now today it might just seem um, table stakes that everyone thinks about these things. But back then, I don't think it was really quite as common to be thinking about culture in the way that that Tony was um, and the way that Theo was and the way that we ended up doing so at GiveForward. Ethan, where can people go to learn more about GigWage and connect with you as well if they'd like to? Uh, I guess probably gigwage.com would be the best place. Uh, um, to connect with me, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn, uh, Ethan Austin. Um, I'm happy to connect with anyone um, and I'm, I'm pretty open. Perfect. Ethan, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. If you want to follow along on the socials for all things Just Go Grind and with me as well, you can find Just Go Grind on Instagram and Twitter at Just Go Grind. You can find me on Twitter at JustinGordon212. Find me on Instagram, JustinGordon8. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day.